political party Jesus is this version of Jesus that has been created to support a political agenda. And I want to give some disclaimers as we start the, uh, the service day, as you might imagine uh, that I would. First of all, I don't agree with both sidesism. Who knows what both sidesism is over the past few years? The idea that, well, both sides are equally responsible. You know, both sides are to blame. Now, are both sides blameless? No, of course not. Is there a political party that represents Jesus Christ fully and completely? No, of course not. As we talk about the kingdom of God today, God's kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. There's not a country that's going to, going to be God's kingdom. There's not a political party that's going to be God's kingdom. At the same time, there are a lot of people in America who feel like, because of what's happened, their, their political party left them. They, they're, they're not, they don't recognize it anymore. They're not sure what happened, but I don't believe in both sidesism, and that's not what I'm doing today in this ser ser uh, uh, sermon. This is a nuanced sermon. It's a sermon for people who are thinking compassionate people and who do want to think deeply about what it means to follow Jesus in the time that we live in. So that's disclaimer number one. Second, I see our current issues, and it's just where I'm coming from, I see our current issues as more than just the traditional disagreements between Democrats and Republicans. I never talked about politics in church much prior to a few years ago. When it was, when it was uh, you know, Romney and Obama, or McCain and Obama, I didn't talk about things in church very much. It, just, it wasn't something that I felt needed to be addressed that much. It's just where I'm coming from. But I don't think that's where we are anymore. We're not, we're not in Democrat versus Republican land anymore, in my view. We're in, we're in a struggle between people who believe in democracy and people who don't. That's where I'm coming from. I just want you to know where I'm coming from so you will know. And that does transcend political party. Like I said, there are people who, who don't recognize their party anymore. And then uh, lastly, I want to say, vote. <laughs> vote. Where I'm coming from is that what happens over the next few years might decide the fate of this country for a long time. I believe the stakes have never been higher. I don't intend to tell you how to vote, but I vote, and I think you should vote. So no matter what I say today, we, we will critique some things, but I, I believe that, that voting is the key to keeping democracy in America. All right, so I wanted to start with those disclaimers. So first, let's make an observation that's probably pretty obvious. Fusing religion and politics has damaged both. Fusing religion and politics in the United States has damaged both. The political scientist Harold Laswell authored a book in 1936 entitled Politics, Who Gets What, When, and How? And that became the classic definition of what politics is. Politics is who gets what, when, and how. Now, so should, should people of faith be involved in making those decisions? I believe so, sure. We all have our value system that we bring to politics, whether we're, we're religious people or non-religious people, everybody has a value system that we bring to politics. So, of course, your faith should inform your, inform your political views. Your value system, if you are a, a secular humanist, your value system should inform your political views. So I don't believe that religious people should stay out of politics. I, not at all, that's not what the First Amendment means, in my view. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is religious people who have created a version of Jesus to support a political agenda that, let's be honest, looks nothing like the Jesus we encounter in the Gospels. That's what we're talking about today. So 
A few years ago, uh, I had Frank Schaefer as a guest at a, at a church live. He was our online guest, actually, about a year ago um, during, the, during the pandemic. And uh, he was live here a few years ago at this church. And so he came out here. And, and um, who knows who Frank Schaefer is, by the way, okay? Frank is the son of a famous figure in the religious right back in the 1970s named Francis Schaefer who was incredibly influential in U.S. politics among evangelicals, okay? So Frank is his son. So Frank came out here to speak, and I took him to a nice dinner in Chandler, and I was like that pushy date, okay? Now I'm taking you to dinner. Now tell me everything. Tell me how the religious right started. I want to know it all. I didn't say a word, and in between bites, Frank told me the story because he was there. He was helping his dad. He was on private jets. He was in the room with Jerry Falwell and, and, and Franklin Graham and others as the religious rites started in the 1970s. And I said, I just want to know everything. And so he was a captive uh, audience, or, I was a cap, or he was captive, and, and uh, he just told me the story. And here's what he said. He said, back in the 70s, there was a decision, I believe it was in 1972, where a federal court ordered that religious schools had to be racially integrated or they would lose their tax-exempt status. Now, maybe that strikes you as, what in the world is he talking about? Because I didn't learn anything about that in school. What's, what's he talking about? When schools were integrated in the South in the 50s and 60s by the federal government, Dwight Eisenhower integrated public schools. There were Christians in the South who responded to that by creating their own private schools, private Christian schools. And it just so happened that those private Christian schools were whites-only schools. How many of you learned that in school growing up? I didn't. And so you would have a situation where 90-some percent of the public school in a southern city was black. And 100% of the private schools, the, the private, quote-unquote, Christian schools, were white. It also applied to, to some universities. Bob Jones University was an example of that in South Carolina that was not racially integrated into the 1970s. And so what happened was there was a, a federal ruling that if these schools don't integrate and allow students of color, they're going to lose their IRS tax exemption. And then... Uh, even though that was law, it wasn't really enforced until 1978, and there was a federal court ruling that said you need to enforce this. I think it happened, it happened twice, 76 and 78. And by that time, Jimmy Carter was president, and the Carter administration was tasked with enforcing this rule that if these private, quote-unquote, Christian whites-only schools don't integrate, they're going to lose their tax-exempt status. As Frank Schaefer was chewing his food here in Chandler, telling me that story, he said, that's when the evangelical pastors in the South became involved in politics. And it wasn't until about, well, four to five years later, depending on how you're counting, that abortion became the issue that was talked about the most. He said what was really the catalyst was the fact that these whites-only evangelical Christian schools in the South we're going to have their tax-exempt status taken away by the federal government. And for them, and this is what they said, the federal government was attacking their religious freedom. And he said that was the beginning of the religious right 
in the United States in the late 70s. Frank and his dad, Francis, were the ones who made it about abortion. And Frank, if you've heard him speak, it's safe to say he's no longer a part of the religious right. Understatement of the day by, by Ryan. Um, but they're the ones who really pushed the abortion issue. And that's what now, if you have friends who say, oh, I vote this way, they're single issue voters, it's often because of abortion, correct? But that wasn't the way that the religious right started. Randall Balmer is a professor of religion at Dartmouth College, and he just released a book two weeks ago, actually, called Bad Faith, uh, Race and the Rise of the Religious Right. It's a, it's a little book. It takes about you know, 45 minutes to read it, where Randall Balmer tells the same story. Frank actually endorsed it. There were other uh, leaders at that time who have endorsed the story. That yes, that is how the religious right became uh, rose to prominence in America. So now the, the issues of abortion and same-sex marriage, those are the issues, and prayer in schools, correct? And whether we post the Ten Commandments on public property, those were the things that, that became the, 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 the facade of the religious right. But the beginning was rooted in segregation. Now, for some folks, that's so hard-hitting. You're thinking, man, why did I come to this church this morning? Or is that... Is that really true? And if, if that's the case, if that's what you're wondering, I would just encourage you to do some Googling. Or you could pick up Randall Balmer's book. And now quite a bit of ink has been spilled about the origin of this political party Jesus in the United States. And, and it's damaged both religion and politics now in America. It's damaged Christianity profoundly. So. Uh, I have a graph here. You're not going to be able to see the numbers, but you're going to be able to see the line and the trend. From 1975 to uh, 2020, church attendance, and this actually includes mosques and, and synagogues, but it's mostly church attendance in the United States, church membership rather, dropped from 71% in 1975 to now 47% in 2020. You can see that it dipped around 1980, and then it came back up to 71% in the mid-80s, and then now you see the, the roller coaster hill, especially over the past 20 years. That's what's happened to church membership in the United States. And David Campbell, professor and chair of uh, the University of Notre Dame's political science department, said that this decline has been caused by what he called an allergic reaction to the religious right. That people of all ages, and especially young people, have seen Christianity as being uh, characterized as anti-gay, anti-science, anti-women, uh, anti-people of color, and they simply don't want to be identified with that. Shocker, that there are so many people who look at what the religious right stands for and they say, I just don't want to be identified with that. That's not who I am. And because of that, and because so many churches have, have joined lockstep with the religious right, Church membership has sharply declined. Now, it's also, of course, damaged politics. Like I said earlier, there are people who, you know, maybe you were a member of a certain party for years and years, and you don't recognize your party anymore. It's changed just too much. And there are thinking conservatives who realize they created a monster that they're no longer in control of. January 6th proved that. When you saw people, you know, we'll talk more about this next week, when you saw people with eight-foot crosses and then a Confederate flag, and a Christian t-shirt. And they, we've unleashed something here that we did not intend to, to, to let out 
and to the public. And so it has damaged politics in the United States. It's turned politics in the United States for some people into a holy war because they believe they're voting for Jesus. They've created this, this version of Jesus that agrees with all their political stances, and then they vote for that Jesus that they've created. And when you're, when you're fighting in a religious holy war, there's no room for compromise. You can't make a deal in some back room in Washington the way that democracy depends on. If you believe that Jesus wants you to vote a certain way and, and the rest of these people are, are essentially infidels, democracy can't function like that. And so we are where we are, partly because of what's happened to religion in the United States and how it's affected politics. And, and power is enticing. If you believe that, that your way of life is being threatened, then sure, it, it looks like a, a great solution to just grab onto political power. It, it, it looks like the shortest uh, distance between two points to, to, to get your religion and your cultural views mandated on the public, but it's come at a very high price. And so this political party, Jesus, has been created to fuse religion and politics and claim that, well, Jesus wants me to stand for something that had its roots in racial segregation. So what we're talking about today is the parable of the mustard seed, which is a story Jesus tells, and, and this, this whole series is about getting to know Jesus better, the real Jesus. And Jesus tells the parable of the mustard seed on the Sabbath day, the Jewish Sabbath, and it's actually in three Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. In Mark and Matthew, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath who had a, a, a shriveled hand. Something was wrong with his hand, and Jesus healed that man. In Luke, it's Jesus healed a woman who was bowed over like this her entire life, and she couldn't stand up straight, and Jesus healed her on the Sabbath. These are presented as miracles that Jesus healed these people. So when Jesus healed on the Sabbath, there were very religious people there, religious insiders, who did have access to politics, uh, political leaders, the Herodians we read in, in the Gospels. They had access to political power. They saw Jesus healing these people on the Sabbath. And they said to Jesus, you know, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And that healing that you just did is work. And you're breaking the law. Jesus called them hypocrites and said, well, if a sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't you, wouldn't you save the sheep's life on the Sabbath? Or if, if you have an animal that obviously needs to drink water on the Sabbath, wouldn't you lead the, the animal to water on the Sabbath? How much more, Jesus said, would we free these people who have been uh, uh, struggling with these disabilities for so long? How, how much more should we heal them on the Sabbath? And then in one of the Gospels, it says that those ultra-religious people, from that point on, consulted with the Herodians about how they might get Jesus killed. And so they used their political power because they believed Jesus was breaking a religious law by healing these people. So religious people with political connections saw their religiosity as more important than human need. That's the key. That's the setting here. Religious people saw their religiosity, their religious rules, as more important than human, human need. And then Jesus tells this parable. Let's read it. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is like a mustard seed, 
which a man took and planted in his field, and though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. So these people criticize Jesus, and then he tells this parable of the mustard seed, which is crystal clear, right? We know exactly what you mean, Jesus, of course, the, the mustard seed, yeah, yeah, that's it, the mustard seed. So parables can be mysterious stories, like Aaron said last week, kind of like a Buddhist cone, and, and, and you're meant to reflect on it and ask questions about what this, what this means. What does this mustard seed parable mean? So you should know, uh, here's a picture of a mustard seed. It is a small seed here on the left. It's about a, a millimeter to two millimeters in diameter. It's a very small seed, and then it grows into a large plant. You see here on the right, in Galilee, where Jesus lived, a mustard seed could grow to a plant between maybe four feet up to 10 feet. And, uh, and so you see that, that it can grow into a large plant. But let's also be honest, would you call that a tree? No, not really. And it's also true, birds don't build nests in mustard plants. Now, Jesus saw mustard plants everywhere, all over the area where he grew up. And so he knew that it's not really a tree. And birds don't really build nests in mustard plants, which just makes this even more confusing. Where is Jesus going with this story? What does this parable mean? All right, so it's not a tree. It's more like a weed. And it's kind of invasive. Pliny the Elder, uh, who was a historian, wrote in 78 AD that you can hardly get rid of them. If you plant mustard seeds, they grow into these plants, and they grow so fast you can't even get rid of them. They're annuals. And so they die, and they come back every year, and they just take over your garden. And so what does Jesus mean by this parable of the mustard seed? Something else is going on here. And Bible scholars have this view of what Jesus is getting at. There's something... Uh, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures referred to as the imperial tree. Now remember, Jesus and his disciples and all the people who lived in that time, they were steeped in the Hebrew scriptures. It was their life. It formed how they, how they thought, how they viewed the world. And so the symbol of the imperial tree comes from a couple of books in the Old Testament. One is Daniel, the other is Ezekiel. In Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, do you remember that? that name from Sunday school, if you grew up in church, with the flannel graph, and he probably had a really tall hat on, and he was the king of Babylon, long beard, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and Babylon was the empire. In 586 BC, the Babylonian empire uh, conquered the land of Judah, now southern Israel, and they took the people of Jerusalem to exile in Babylon, which is now Iraq, by the way. So King Nebuchadnezzar in, in the 500s BC had a dream. And Daniel was one of the children of Israel who was brought over in the exile and Daniel could interpret dreams. And this comes from a different culture in the ancient Middle East. And Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And in this dream, he saw a tall tree that reached all the way to the heavens and, and it touched the sky. And it was visible from all over the earth. Whatever this tree did, people could see it all over the world. Right? Its actions affected the whole world. Its leaves were beautiful, fruit abundant. There was food for all. Under, the, under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. The imperial tree. But in his dream, a watcher, it's literally a watcher, an angel from heaven comes down, and they cut down the tree. 
And it turns out Daniel interprets the, the dream. The tree is Nebuchadnezzar, the, the, the king of the empire. He's the tree. The tree is the imperial tree. And Daniel says God's going to cut that tree down. And, and you could say all kinds of things. Um, God's going to cut that tree down because people are getting abortions. God's going to cut that tree down because gay people can get married. God's going to cut that tree down because they took prayer out of schools. What does Daniel say? It's not going to be on the screen here. Daniel says, God's going to cut the tree down by, because of your wickedness towards the oppressed. And Daniel says to the, to the king, the emperor, the most powerful man in the world, if you will renounce your sins by doing what is right and renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, then your prosperity can continue. But that's the imperial tree. And then in Ezekiel, God says, God says, uh, God is going to plant a tree that will be a, a tall tree that will uh, do these things for the world. And so there's this symbolism that we wouldn't really grasp at face value when we read about the mustard seed because we're not, most of us not steeped in the Hebrew scriptures the way that Jesus was. And so this, this parable of the mustard seed seems to, to conjure up this symbol of the imperial tree. And, the, and they were living in the time of the Roman Empire. Jesus and his disciples, when it wasn't the Babylonians, it was the Romans who came in and they conquered everybody. And they oppressed and they, they, uh, they did whatever they wanted. They dominated people. They crucified people. And Jesus seems to say that the kingdom of God, God's rule... It's not a political party. It's not a country. God's authority, God's leadership grows up like a mustard seed from something so small. It starts so small you can barely see it, but it grows like a weed. Jesus is kind of being funny. He's kind of poking at these religious people, kind of being annoying. It's like a weed you can't get rid of. Jesus says God's kingdom is going to grow, and, and you have this imperial tree that you trust in. And it has all the power in the world, and you, you access political power through the imperial tree. But God's kingdom from nothing is going to grow up to the point where it overtakes even the imperial tree. You can't even get to the imperial tree because these weeds are just going to spread so fast that it's going to block your path. That God's kingdom is going to grow like a mustard plant and even choke out the imperial tree. And so God, God's kingdom, God's leadership starts small, but it eventually takes over the empire. And so it's so easy for us when we want to make our religious views or we want to make our cultural views the law. It's so easy to access political power, the imperial tree, but it's really a shortcut. Jesus says the way it really works, changing people's hearts and lives and changing society is a grassroots movement. You plant that little mustard seed and you water it, and it grows, and, and pretty soon, it, it just takes over. It grows so fast, doing the right thing, healing on the Sabbath, healing people who are hurting, doing right by the oppressed. It takes over, and it grows to the point where the imperial tree isn't even impressive anymore. You can't even get to it anymore, because this, these weeds of the kingdom of God have grown so quickly, and they've taken over, and now everybody can see, no, this is what's right. This is the right way. So we don't access political power by taking a shortcut and just trying to climb the imperial tree. But we plant that seed and we let God's kingdom, God's influence grow. And so takeaways for us might be something like this. Allow God's kingdom, allow Jesus to expand your politics. Like I said earlier, I don't believe in both sidesism. 
Um, but I've had lots of conversations over the past year, year and a half, uh, with people who are, you know, like most of you here at the well, have the same kind of political views and have been greatly disturbed by what's happened over the past few years. And, and you see, obviously, there is a political party, Jesus, and, and religion is more useful to that party, frankly, because there are more secular folks in the other party. So religion's not as useful. And some of you have, have become introspective and, and you've started to wonder, I remember one conversation in particular, um, person had some, uh, you'd call run-ins, <laughs> run-ins with family members. It was supposed to be Thanksgiving dinner, and it, and it turned into this chaotic political fight because somebody wanted to talk about politics. And, and, and she was wondering, how do I relate to people who believe in political party Jesus, and they see the world so differently from me? What do I do? And so the takeaway for those of us who might agree with her, it's not both sidesism. It's not both sides are equally guilty of creating a political party Jesus. But the takeaway might be to not not turn this time that we live in into our own holy war against them. You can speak out for love without becoming a hater. You can speak out against hatred without hating other people yourself. And, and so for all of us, even if you felt greatly disturbed by what's happened over the past few years, we can allow God's kingdom, allow Jesus to expand our politics as well. So I have a little... Uh, diagram, uh, because that's just part of my charm. I love diagrams, and uh, as nerdy as they may be. And so maybe your political view looks like this. I have, you know, Democrats and Republicans. And maybe you're a part of your party, and, and that, just, that just consumes your whole view. You know, I, it's, it's my party, right or wrong. You know? and, and so maybe, maybe that's your view. And once again, I don't believe in both sidesism, and I believe in voting, so you're going to have to vote for one or the other, right? And I think you should vote. So please hear me. But if this is your entire view, well, I'm a part of my party, and it's my party right or wrong, well, perhaps that view could be expanded. And so the next, the next uh, slide here, we have Democrats and Republicans, and we live in a purple United States of America. And so our country is, is more than just one political party. And so maybe allowing the, God's kingdom, allowing Jesus to expand your view of politics is, well, you know what, I'm going to try the best I possibly can to understand what motivates people who disagree with me. More importantly, to understand the needs that people face in the country. The country's bigger than my own party. There are people all over the country who are hurting, who have legitimate grievances. And maybe they, they seek access to the imperial tree uh, for different reasons than we think they should. Maybe, they, maybe we feel like they don't understand where all their problems come from, and maybe they're going to the, to the same people who are causing their problems. But we can at least seek to understand, okay, well, this country is full of people who, who are hurting. And so my view has expanded beyond my party to the country. And then perhaps we expand our view a little bit more. As we watch what's happened over the past 20 years in our involvement in Afghanistan, we realize that it's not just our country that matters. But we live on a planet. Do you want to say ooh and ah to my awesome graphics there? You see that, that purple country? That took me like an hour to do, I'll be honest. You would not know by looking. And so, wait, God cares about more than America. You do realize, to a lot of people in that country, or in, in this country, that kind of sounds controversial. 
You realize that? I know you do. You're like, yes, Ryan, I realize that, very much so. I realize that. God cares about more than just America. As we watch what's happening in Afghanistan, I have folks in the church here who have, have lot, uh, missions involvement in Indonesia, and they have friends in Indonesia, and they, they hear firsthand how COVID has decimated people of Indonesia who don't have access to the same kind of vaccinations we have. That God cares about more than our political party, yeah, but more than just our country, that the entire world matters. Last week, Aaron Stritzel quoted John 3.16, for God so loved the Democrats. That he, is that what it says? Here's the tougher one. For God so loved the United States of America. See, that's tough for some folks. What does it say? For God so loved the world. In Greek, that's cosmos. It means the world and everything in it. Now, we would say God loves the universe. We could expand the view even more. If, there are life on other, if there's life on other planets, God loves them too. How's that for a head trip? Right? If God so loves the world, the universe, and everybody and everything in it. And so we can allow, no matter what your political view is, no matter how freaked out you've been over the past few years for good reason, we can allow the parable of the mustard seed to speak to us too and allow God to expand our view of politics. God loves everybody all over the world. And there are times when as Americans, let's just say you're an American progressive. Let's just say that. We'll just pretend that you're a progressive in, in America. I'm trying to be funny. It was funnier in my head than it was out loud. It didn't really work. That's fine. Let's just pretend that you have a more progressive view on some issues. One of the things that we, we could take away is that there are times that progressives in America aren't progressive enough. See, because we live in our own system here in this country with our own interests. And one of the things that's been said for years as we watch now what's happening in Afghanistan is all of the media in America, conservative, progressive, however you want to label it, all the media in America has a pro-war bias. I'm old enough to remember when we, when we went into Afghanistan to begin with. And I didn't hear a whole lot of outcry from you know, people who might talk a good game now. The American media, typically they jump right in. There's a pro-war bias in the American media. Another example, over the past several years, one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world has been happening in a little country called Yemen, which is next to Saudi Arabia. Awful atrocities have been committed. Thousands and thousands of children in Yemen have been either killed by bombs or by being starved to death. And mothers holding their children in their arms and saying, he's dying and I can't, I can't do anything to save him. That has happened because of a war that Yemen has had with Saudi Arabia. Yemen had a civil war and then Saudi Arabia got involved. And the, the Saudis led bombing and so on and we have this strange alliance with Saudi Arabia. And see, this is one of the difficult truths for all of us this morning is that the bombs that were dropped on those Yemeni kids and that cut off the food supplies and caused those children to starve were U.S. made. We sold them to the Saudis. How much have you heard about that in the American media over the past several years? 
maybe a few minutes worth. It was actually uh, a study that the American media covered Yemen. This is conservative, progressive media. It was like less than an hour. And Stormy Daniels was covered 455 times. And you understand that, okay, we live within a country, whether you're conservative or progressive, we live within a country that, with its own system and its own media and its own interests, owned by corporations. And the goal is ratings. And war is a ratings bonanza. The ratings are up right now. And so there are times when maybe they're not progressive enough. And so no matter what side of the aisle we find ourselves on, the parable of the mustard seed means perhaps we allow the kingdom of God as it grows up in this mustard plant to expand our political views. And then lastly, my last point is that we see progress as non-linear. For those of us like that, that woman I talked about earlier who, that's my favorite part about portable church, by the way, that air conditioning system. Uh, this woman who had this uh, painful struggle with her family over religion and politics to the point that it was, it was hard to go see family anymore. There was some estrangement happening. Um, she you know, has felt anxiety about that and, and what do I do and, and, how, and, and kind of doing her own gut check and how can I be the better person, the bigger person here. And, and it seems like we take maybe a step forward and we take two steps back. With family members, you think they're making progress and then you know, something else is said or as a country even. We, we think we're making progress, and then, and then somebody's elected with, oh, boy, we, we didn't make the progress we thought we had made. And so perhaps this small seed growing into a large plant is an opportunity for us to see that progress is nonlinear. And here's what I mean by that. Whenever you want to do something, you have a goal, like fitness and health. You want, you want to work out. You want to, you want to eat better. You want to work out. Or you have career goals or relationship goals. Or you want to learn a musical instrument or whatever whatever your goal is, we tend to automatically assume that we are going to make progress in a straight line, that we're just going to start something, and then we're just going to get better and better and better and better and better, and then we reach our goal. Has that ever worked out for you? It's never worked for me like that. I know that for sure. And so we have this view that progress looks like this. We just start something, and we just get better and better and better and better. Now, that's not how it's worked for me. And think about it. Every movie that you've ever gone to, every story you've ever read, is that how the, the plot of the movie goes? You have the main character, and they just start out at the beginning of the movie, and that character's life just gets better and better and better and better and better, and then the movie ends. Closing credit. And scene. Is that how the movie goes? Is that how any story goes? Why? It would be the worst movie ever, wouldn't it? Why? Because that's not how life works. That's not your story, it's not mine, and it's not how progress is made in anything in life. But a lot of times, the truth is, we will get discouraged. If, if, you know, if you're starting to work out, and then you kind of fall off the wagon, you're like, oh, I just can't do this. And we'll give up if progress doesn't look like this. And the same can be true when it comes to change in our country or in our families, wishing things were better. Progress is nonlinear. Clinical counselor Joyce Martyr wrote an article, Understand Progress in Life is Not Linear. And she wrote, When a stressor or transition in life occurs, it is normal for us to experience this sort of re uh, regression, a fallback to old patterns, behaviors, and ways of thinking. Part of psycho-spiritual development is learning how to recognize those 
loops, and you're going to see a graphic here in a moment, uh, and implement strategies to recover and get back on course. These include practicing self-compassion, self-care, accessing support, reflecting and learning from the setback, thinking positively, and taking action to move forward. So progress is not a line. Instead, progress tends to look like this. Doesn't that look like your workout routine? That's what mine looks like. I've had a, a membership at Planet Fitness for a really long time, and they don't see me that often, it seems. That's what progress looks like for me. And perhaps that's what progress looks like for us as a country. And if you want to see change happen in this country or in your own life, in your, in your marriage, in your relationship with your children, in, in your relationships with family members who see the world so much differently, if any progress can be made, it's likely going to look a lot more like this. And it requires seeing progress in a new way, doesn't it? Not just running to the imperial tree and taking a shortcut and saying, well, if we can just get you know, some laws passed, that'll force everybody to live by our views and, and we'll be golden, great. That was easy. It's not how real progress is made. Jesus says it's made from the grassroots. You plant a seed and God's kingdom grows. Goodness grows. Truth and beauty grows. What everybody knows is right in their hearts. That grows. And it takes over. And, and there, there are times it grows so fast, it, it's like a weed. And Jesus says, you just keep on watering that mustard plant, that, that mustard seed, and it's going to take over even the imperial tree. That's how change happens. And you'll think you're making progress, and then there's a loop that Joyce Martyr talked about. And you think, oh, all is lost. Where, what are we going to do now? But you just keep on watering that seed, and that plant grows and grows and grows, and progress is made. But it requires seeing in a new way. I don't want to just run to the imperial tree and take a shortcut. I want to allow God's kingdom to grow like the mustard seed. Now, right now, the, uh, the Paralympics are happening. We had the, the Olympics back in, in a few weeks ago, and now the Paralympics are taking place. And I showed this video of, of Josh Blue, the comedian, if you were here a few weeks ago, who played uh, soccer for the Paralympics team. And the Paralympics are the Olympics for people who have physical disabilities. And they're happening right now in Tokyo. And there's a, a Turkish Paralympic swimmer uh, named Sumeya Boyachi. She's 18 years old, and she's competing in uh, the, the Paralympics right now, and I have a picture of her. She was born with no arms. And anytime I hear a story about somebody who faces some kind of a physical disability and they turn into an amazing athlete, I mean, that's inspiring alone by itself. That's a great sermon illustration. I'm, I'm happy, I'm satisfied. Man, that person, they did it. They, they made all kinds of progress and they did it. But there's something else about her that jumped out at me about her story that helps us, I think, when we're thinking about seeing differently and not taking shortcuts, but allowing things to grow and making nonlinear progress. She first realized she had no arms when she was about four years old, according to her mom. And her mom said that, that as a child, she expressed this by singing a song. And she made up a little song in, in, in her language and it, it went like, where are my arms? Where are my arms? And her mom took a video of her singing that song. And every time she sang that, her mom sang back to her, your mommy loves you. Your mommy loves you. And her mom encouraged her that she could do anything. So she learned to, to paint with her feet. And as she learned to write, you know, at four or five years old, maybe write letters, write her name, she learned to write with her feet. 
And so she had a, a loving mom who nurtured her. But about a year later, after she realized she had no arms, she was looking for things to do. And of course, it's all about the way you see. If, if, you, if you have to go through life, even as a child with no arms, you see the world differently, correct? You see the world in terms of things you can do and things you can't. And you, there are things that other little kids can do that you can't do. And you're just, you're just kind of watching, observing, how do I fit in? What do I do? And this is what got me. As we think about seeing differently and not taking the shortcut to the imperial tree, but letting that grow slowly over time. One day at five years old, she looked at fish swimming in an aquarium. She said, Mommy, look, fish don't have any arms. I could swim like a fish. And now she does. It's all about how you see. I, I, doesn't that just get you? Oh, I love that. Fish don't have any arms. Like me. Other people, if you, you know, if you have both arms and legs, you just watch Michael Phelps' videos. And, and she just sees the world differently. Fish don't have any arms like me. I could swim like a fish because it's about how you see. How do you see society? How do you see progress? How do you see changing things that need to be changed? Do we take the shortcut of running the imperial tree? Or do we listen to Jesus like the imperial mustard seed and we, we start at the grassroots and we let it grow over time? How does real change take place? I want to close by showing a video of her. Um, this is the first championship she won back in 2018. She's actually swimming the stroke, the backstroke, tomorrow. So you could, you could Google her tomorrow and see how she does. But this is the first medal that she won back in 2018. Let's watch uh, Sue Mei Buachi. Teresa Perales from Spain. Indeed, they are closing for Gioni and Perales, but it looks like Boyanchi is just leading them in here, just ahead of Ostern. Can Boyanchi hold on? What a race this is going to be! It's going to be really close. Perales coming back all the time, but Boyanchi will have to touch with her head, and she does touch with her head, and she is first place. Turkey will take the gold medal here. When I placed first in Dublin, right after I crossed the finish line with my head, I could only feel pain. It felt like my body and legs weren't attached to each other. I was so happy, but I still couldn't believe it was real. Behind this young lady, Sumi Boyachi, 15 years of age, she is the champion. Look, mommy, fish don't have any arms, just like me. And she dolphin kicks her way to a gold medal. And she's going to swim tomorrow. We'll see how she does. So when it comes to political party Jesus, there are so many in our country who have taken the shortcut of running to the imperial tree, running to power, running to you know, pander to politicians and try to get laws passed to force people to live according to their culture. But if we want to see change, do we do the same thing? Or do we perhaps realize that change happens in a different way? Jesus says it happens from the ground up as a grassroots movement. Not by seeking power uh, from the imperial tree, but by planting seeds and watering them. And God's leadership 
takes over and grows and people see what the right thing is. No, it's right to heal on the Sabbath. It's right to heal people every day. Absolutely, yeah. And it's right to free people who are oppressed. And it's right to welcome everybody to come to your school, regardless of the color of their skin. And it's right to welcome people in this country, regardless of the color of their skin. And it's right to care about what happens to people on the other side of the planet, because their, their lives matter too. God loves them too. And so we can see a different view of what power looks like and what it looks like to follow Jesus in America. I invite you to pray with me. God, thank you for this, this parable that is mysterious, and yet at the same time, it perfectly describes the journey that we've been on over the past 50 years in this country, where folks who, many of them well-meaning, believe they're following you by seeking power at the imperial tree, trying to legislate their own morality, their own culture, whether it started with segregation and then moved on to views of other issues, trying to coerce people to live according to their religion. And that has horribly damaged both politics and religion in America. It's repulsed so many people who feel like they don't have a spiritual home anymore, who decided I can't be a part of a church anymore if that's what it means to be a Christian. But that's just political party Jesus. That's not the real Jesus. Lord, you told the parable of the mustard seed. That whenever we want to see change happen in society, whenever we want to see change happen in our own lives, it happens by planting a seed, not taking shortcuts, not looking for the easy way out, but by planting that small seed and and having the faith that it's going to grow, that I can reach the goal, that that our country can get better. And the progress isn't going to look like a straight line where everything just gets better and better and better and then the movie ends. That's not what life is like. We'll have peaks and valleys and setbacks. And Jesus says, you just trust that you planted that mustard seed. And it's growing right now. Even if you don't see it growing yet. And in a surprisingly quick amount of time, It's going to grow, and it's going to change things. And folks are going to realize, even though they sought power at the imperial tree, that that public opinion has changed. And the politicians are going to have to change now, too, because people have realized now, as that mustard plant has grown, no, this is the right thing to do. This is the good, true, and beautiful thing. This represents God. This represents goodness. This makes life better for everybody. This is, this, what, this is what's worth investing in. That's how real change happens. And we want to be on your team, Jesus. We want to trust in the parable of the mustard seed. Even in, in discouraging times now, in times when some of us feel anxious because of our relationships that have been damaged by this fake version of political party Jesus. And it's hard for us to even find community. It's hard to find a church. It's hard to talk to family members sometimes. Some of us are facing setbacks in life in other ways. And it has nothing to do with religion and politics, but the, the parable still applies. That you put in that work, you water that seed, and it's, it's gonna grow. And you're gonna make progress. It's not gonna be a straight line. 
but you just keep trusting. And that progress will come. God, we thank you for the truth that we have the privilege of hearing from you. The solution to so many problems. And we want to be a part of that solution. We want to experience your peace and be able to celebrate as we see good things happen as that mustard plant grows. We thank you that we get to be a part of it, God. In Jesus' name. And everybody said...